What is up, listening audience? Hi, welcome back. Thanks again for downloading our content. We really appreciate it. I'm your host, Jake Wiskirchen, and I think you're going to enjoy this week's interview. It's with Jamie Curtis. She is the new principal at a brand new charter school in northern Nevada called Pinecrest Academy. We cover a lot of topics, not just education and charter versus traditional public school, but also social and emotional learning, which I think is a really critical emerging topic. Um, It really should have been interwoven into our curricula for many, many years, but uh, as it were, we just kind of ignored it. So now we're making a better effort to incorporate that as as a lens through which we educate our children. We need to teach them the social skills. We need to teach them their emotional functioning. And uh, I think we do an adequate job of covering why in this podcast. So I hope you enjoy it. In the meantime, please check out our sponsors. Audible has been with us for a really long time. We're excited to continue that partnership. If you want a free audio book trial, you can go to audibletrial.com slash noggin notes. Helps us out and it helps you out because you get to feed and nourish your noggin by consuming high quality audio content, books, uh, news articles, comedy, entertainment of all sorts. And the cool thing is with this free trial, you get a free download and you get to keep the download even if you cancel your trial. But you probably won't because Audible is amazing in their library. After all, they are powered by Amazon and Amazon is quite large in its reach. Go to audibletrial.com slash notes for your free 30-day trial. Quit anytime and keep your free download. Also, zephyrwellness.org. I have to mention my own company because we serve a lot of people and we do it very proudly. And this is one of the avenues by which we help people learn and grow and develop by sponsoring podcasts like this one. But we also produce a, a lot more content on YouTube and on Instagram and on Facebook. So follow us there at Zephyr Wellness, and you can continue to enrich your noggin by those channels as well. In the meantime, enjoy my interview with Jamie Curtis, principal of Pinecrest Academy of Northern Nevada. Well, on this week's episode of Noggin Notes, we have Jamie Curtis, who is the new principal at a charter school. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a tuition-free a publicly funded charter school in Northern Nevada called Pinecrest Academy. And uh, the unique relationship I have with Jamie is that I chair the board of directors for Pinecrest. And I don't think I've ever mentioned that on this, on this show before. Um, so I guess literally Jamie works kind of for me, even though we have a board that hires her, but uh, hello, Jamie, how are you? Hi, Jake. I'm well, thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. And I, I, I'm really excited about this because education touches everybody's life. And, and I don't care if you're, you know, empty nester or you just never even had kids. Uh, we should all have an investment in our community's education because we all end up interacting with human beings who go through the education system. And it would be in our best interest to have the most robust education possible for those human beings so that we don't get our fries mixed up uh, at the at the restaurant or we, you know, don't get somebody knowledgeable about the car repair. Um, we want people to understand basic functionality of math and science and, and English language and that kind of thing. So um, what we want to talk about today is social and emotional learning, and we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, first, uh, introduce yourself a little bit, tell, you know, give a, give a little bit of a, a background history resume, um, where, where you come from and, and why you're here doing this now. Yeah, absolutely. So I was actually born and raised in Northern Nevada. I went to the University of Nevada, graduated 
um, in 2004 as a recipient of the uh, then Millennial Scholarship. I was interested primarily in politics at the time. I took an interest to French language and went in a study abroad program over to France. And in that experience, it really opened my eyes to uh, the, the process of education, of what it means to, to learn and observe. Um, and I became acutely aware of all of those different components of not just understanding language, but human interaction, um, of process, of culture, and all of those things that shape our experiences. So when I came back from France, I moved to Texas. I started a master's program at the University of North Texas. I studied secondary education with an emphasis in student development, uh, particularly language acquisition, um, and spent 13 years in Texas in public and private school working on educating students and teachers alike and not just the processes of, of education in our classroom design, but also the importance of building community, communicating with parents and helping create those structures for our students and awareness that needs to happen in order for students to be successful in life beyond the classroom. In 2016, I came back to Reno and began working um, under the internship of Denise Hausauer, who was then the principal at Damani Ranch High School, and did a lot of work um, with social emotional learning with her at that campus, um, and really began to understand, um, not just in the elementary setting, but in the secondary setting, all of these skills that students really need to have that aren't necessarily explicitly taught and are definitely indicators of our success and our student success after they leave our schools. I went from there to Doral Academy where I began working as the assistant principal and uh, then this year 2020 I'm opening Pinecrest Academy as the founding principal. So very excited to bring this experience and this work to our Pinecrest community um, and share a little bit about what that looks like with you and your listeners. Yeah, I think it would be uh, it would do the audience well to because as I've gone through this uh, journey, uh, I've learned a lot about what charter is versus um, non-charter quote unquote traditional schools, and and it's not that they're not public or somehow different. Uh, it's just that there's a a different level of autonomy with a with a charter school, at least at least in the state of Nevada. And I, I think it would do the audience well if we explain some of that. Um, because like I said, as I've gone through and I've learned, I've noticed that uh, what I thought I knew, uh, a lot of other people had no clue. And and I, and I then I found out I had no clue. So I've done a lot of learning and I figure it would behoove the audience to learn as well. So if you wouldn't mind, just give a little different, um, you know, compare and contrast between what most people would know as their traditional school district as a like a county-based or, uh, um, you know, city-based school district versus what a charter school looks like. And then uh, maybe compare and contrast uh, public charter school with private charter school as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're so right. Many families um, come to these informational meetings that we have and don't really understand the difference um, and what we're about. So in the state of Nevada, charter schools can be sponsored in one of two ways. Um, both Clark County and Washoe County can sponsor charter schools and have a number of charter schools under the umbrella of the district. 
but the state public charter authority in Nevada also directly sponsors charter schools um, and Pinecrest Academy is one of those schools. So we are funded through uh, the state through public funds, just the way that the school district schools are funded. Um, one of the big differences is that we have, um, as you mentioned, a governing board that is responsible for making decisions for just our school. Um, and that is really one of the biggest differences is because there's a lot of local autonomy when we talk about the charter schools because our board um, is thinking about our school, about our community, the needs of our specific students and our population in a way that allows responsive decisions to happen that, and for us to pivot very quickly to meet the needs of our community. Those are some of the biggest differences. As a publicly funded school, our students attend um, for no tuition cost. They make a choice to come to our school and we run a period of open enrollment every year where, where families can apply to come to the school. Um, and we admit new students in different grade levels every year. So this year we um, were taking on 688 students in grades K through seven and students would have um, applied to come to the school, have participated in a lottery if there's more students, applied for seats than there are seats available and then gone through the process of enrolling in our school. So in, in that case, um, it looks a little bit different because their zoned school would be one that is maybe located in their neighborhood or they have a bus that takes them to school or they walk to school. Whereas our school is located um, on the north end of town. It's a little bit more rural community out at the end of Spanish Springs. And so we'll have families that we um, have from all over the Washoe, uh, Washoe County community, some outside Washoe County, all residents of the state of Nevada um, who make a choice to come to our school and then work on um, the details of getting their students to school. One of the differences when we talk about the tuition piece and one thing I really appreciate about charter is that charters have usually a focus. So when I was at Doral Academy, the focus was arts integration. And so all of our curriculum, instruction, teacher training and planning, community partnerships focus around that focus, that arts integration piece. Um, at Pinecrest, our focus is STEAM education. So we likewise get to have partnerships, education and training, all centered around our, our school's uh, focus of STEAM education. So that being said, for many families who may have students who have specific strengths, talents or interests in those content areas, they may seek out a charter school that has the capacity to have curriculum, training and instruction and delivery of content in those areas. Um, the difference with a, with a private school or any, any type of private um, institution that's not publicly funded is families also have to cover the cost of tuition to attend the school. Um, and that shapes a little bit and for some families can limit their access to that type of education. So in a charter school, it's open to everybody. It's a free public school um, and that capacity of making sure that we have these schools accessible to all of our students is a driving force behind this, this work and the purpose of it. So uh, I want to define an acronym that you threw out there, STEAM. Uh, it's not a word. Uh, STEAM education is not uh, evaporation of water into its gaseous form. Uh, it's an acronym that stands for science, technology, engineering, and math, which is STEM traditionally, but the A that you throw in there to make it STEAM is arts. Um, how does that look when you eyeball a school that says, we are a STEAM school? 
Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. And I do throw that acronym out a lot um, in the education world. It's it's an understood acronym, but I'm, I'm happy to clarify. So when we uh, at, at Pinecrest Academy, our students actually participate in a rotation of special classes. So they spend some time throughout the week actually spending time in what is called our STEAM lab, where we have a specifically NGSS science integrated curriculum that encompasses the art standards, math standards, and technology standards. So in all of the work that the students are doing, they are approaching the science curriculum with a lens of art or through an outlet of art. And they're looking at how what they're doing in math ties into what they're learning in science. Um, and they certainly utilize technology in varying capacities, not just through the program integrations, but also in the creation space. Our students have access to some coding programming. They'll be doing Bitbox programming, which is an app programming code in middle school this year. So it's really about integrating those different disciplines throughout each of those disciplines. So even in ELA, they're learning through a lens of art, through a lens of technology. In art class, they're learning through a lens of math. They're learning through a, a lens of science, and it's really making sure that all of those come together. In addition, we're teaching those disciplines um, independent of each other. So our music teacher, for example, is teaching the performing arts, and she's focused on having access to the content and a, a tiered structure so that students have baseline understanding of the performing arts, how to read music, how to interpret music, and have those skills that build on each other so that as they as they progress in, into middle school and into high school, they have strong foundations in all of those disciplines. That's super cool. Um, what, what, does, what does it look like practically if, if I say, you know, I'm taking my ELA, my English language uh, class, uh, English language arts is what they call it, um, and, and you're overlaying a lens of science or you're overlaying a lens of math, what, is it, what does that practically look like? Are you reading math books? That doesn't sound right. <laughs> yeah, so one of the, the core pieces of this work integrating is um, where everything comes together is through writing. Writing is the expressive lens in all of these disciplines. And so, for example, on... Um, our fifth grade team where our science teacher is teaching ex, you know, exclusively NGSS science content and is focused on science standards, she's also integrating those expository writing standards and teaching students approaches to writing and how to express the, the narration that's required in science and the same thing in math. So it's really understanding that all of the, our academic disciplines don't function in silos apart from each other but they are very much integrated and our students need to have foundational conceptual skills in performing arts and visual arts um, in music and technology in order to utilize those vocabulary um, pools and understandings in their other disciplines to better express themselves, to articulate their thinking, to, to draw inference from, for example, a painting when they're writing a personal narrative. And so it's really intentionally teaching the crossover between um, and the integration between all of those disciplines. That's cool. That, that in my head, that translates to um, 
engineers will be able to write because historically they have not and, and vice versa, you know, the artists don't know how to do math. And you know, so I'm making broad uh, generalizations here, but when, when you and I went to school, we didn't necessarily have that integrated curriculum. What we had was science class and you answered, you know, 10 questions about the solar system and then you were done. You weren't uh, necessarily writing, like you said, expositorily about the solar system and telling stories. It was, uh, it was just Q and a, uh, digest, regurgitate, move on, and and right. things were very siloed. But this is this is exciting. I like the I like the integration, and we'll get to the integration of social emotional learning in a second. But I wanted to hover just for a moment on the on the funding component. So you mentioned tuition at like a private school, uh, and I'll put in air quotes because we're on audio and people can't see it. The the tuition so uh, so to speak at a public school comes from usually something called a per pupil funding that comes down from the state government by way of the federal government in some, in some instances. Um, what is Nevada's per pupil funding and how do we rank among the states? Um, yeah, so Nevada is a little bit different. Um, I believe we rank about 47th, I want to say the last time I looked in terms pretty low. of per, per yeah. pupil funding. Yeah, pretty low. Um, and one of the issues that we continue to face in Nevada is that our um, funding is really responsive to our sales tax and some of our use taxes and some of those funding sources that are more um, that change more frequently depending on on economic uh, turbulence and 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 change and so other states for example might pull more of their school funding from property taxes or from um, excise taxes in different ways in nevada our property taxes are quite low um, and those don't uh, haven't tended to fluctuate very much. And so that per pupil funding primarily comes from our state budget based on our sales tax revenues. And so it does make it highly responsive to economic change um, and definitely um, puts us at um, a constant need for reevaluating that budget if there are changes to the economic capacity of the state budget. So approximately what, what is the dollar value that, that a student commands when enrolled in school? It's around roughly $6,800, depending on, there, there's part of it that's from the state and part comes from the local county where the student resides. Mm -hmm. So between $6,800 and $7,200 per student. That's annually, correct? Annually, yes. So when we hear about, oh my gosh, you're sending your kid to school for $10,000 a year, uh, that's actually not that far off. It, sound, it sounds astronomical, but if we're 47th, it's pretty easy to draw the conclusion that many other states are probably in that nine to 10,000 range anyway. Yeah, that, yeah, absolutely. That's very true. And I think it's important to highlight when we talk about that, that um, in, in the charter world, one difference that we face is our entire operating budget comes from that per pupil allocation or that DSA allocation per student. So um, whereas in some counties, the, the county school district might receive additional funding through um, additional sales tax revenues or things to pay for school buildings and those types of things, we don't have access to those funds in charter schools. So we run our entire operating budget, including the expenses for our building, for our teacher salaries and curriculum and everything from that per pupil allocation. So when we talk about that range um, and the capacity to even have $10,000 per student as they do in some states, um, the capacity of what you can do and, and what that translates to in the classroom and resources for students varies tremendously. 
Yeah. Um, I don't want to bore everybody with the weeds about how uh, <laughs> schools are funded. Uh, so let's switch gears a little bit into the, into the social emotional learning. Cause this, like I said, it's a mental health podcast. So um, you spent some time discovering this uh, thing and, and studying it and integrating it into the, into your classrooms and into your schools. Um, what is SEL for the average listener who doesn't understand that acronym, you know, social and emotional learning? It seems like we take that for granted, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And this was an interesting discovery for me because I found that in my practice um, as an educator, both in the elementary and the secondary mm -hmm. setting, a lot of these, um, these practices I did inherent in my in my interactions with students and with other staff members. And it wasn't until um, I became more involved in the work that I was able to put that title to it, the social and emotional learning um, title, and then dive a little bit deeper into the research um, behind it. And so for someone who isn't familiar with social and emotional learning, we're essentially talking about a person's capacity to be aware of themselves and their surroundings and the people around them and to understand how their actions affect other people, how other people's actions affect them, how to build those relationship skills and how to make good decisions based on um, processing all of that information simultaneously. And so it's a skill, we call this, um, you know, in, in some contexts, you call these soft skills or emotional competencies. There's different ways of, um, of articulating it, but in um, 2016, I was studying um, at Texas Christian University and we, we spent a lot of time talking about what employers thought students were lacking as they left the education world and came into the work world. And um, many of them from, from top employers in, in the area said, you know, they're missing those interaction skills, those social skills, those soft skills. Then, and the problem is those are really hard things to teach. And they said, you know, I can teach them how to use a program. I can teach my employees how to, how to punch a clock or how to operate a piece of machinery or how to build um, the plan the way that I want it. But I can't teach them how to understand that what they do impacts people around them or their response to somebody's comment might impact the whole um, environment and social dynamic of a room. So those kinds of skills um, get, came to the forefront in terms of the awareness that this needs to be at the core of what we're doing to educate students. And um, we'll probably talk about a number of reasons for why this shift, um, but essentially it's just that capacity to make decisions, to have um, self-awareness and to understand our place and relationship to those around us. Yeah, you read my mind, because that was good. My, my next question is what happened? Like, so not just why, but when uh, did, did this suddenly diverge? Because if, if I'm a boomer generation, a person listening to this podcast and I'm going, what do you mean we need to teach kids how to interact with one another? Don't you learn that on the playground? Yeah, that's it. It's, it's so true because it seems like these types of behaviors and, and this knowledge should be so inherent in human interactions. So um, there's a lot of research that indicates a shift that actually happened around 2005 with the delivery and um, popularity of the iPhone and capacity that individuals had to access different types of communication and information from wherever they, they happen to be. Um, and that shift you know, correlates with a number of things, access to the internet and social media and different avenues that really 
took people's attention away from the moment and involvement in their interactions in person and took their attention to a different place and time. Um, and in doing so, also these, these types of devices went not just from adults. Um, I think I was maybe 22 when I got my first iPhone and now, you know, some Children are two, two years old know how to operate iPhones and iPads right. and, and all of these things. So definitely there's a lot of correlation to the increase in technology, social media, and how that takes away from the present and interacting with others in the present. Uh, we had on this podcast a guy named Matt Miller. Uh, he's uh, Dr. Matt Miller from the Veterans Health Administration. He's the director of suicide prevention program there. And I asked him, uh, about the correlation of the rise in suicide that started circa 2006 and seemed to correlate with social media and devices, mobile devices and whatnot. And he's, he picked his words very carefully and gave a very good answer that said, it, it's a tool, right? It's neither good nor bad. And so we don't want to demonize the iPhone and we don't want to demonize Facebook. Uh, what we want to do is we want to create understanding and education around what's possible with those things and uh, and for both great and terrible. What are you seeing as far as parents' involvement in their kids' lives? Are they, are they just throwing the devices at them and just letting them run free or is there actual careful oversight and, you know, is it being used appropriately and beneficially? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Um, so in terms of parents, I, I have seen the pendulum swing, so to speak, in the last 10 years in education. So I think there wasn't as much awareness when these types of, um, of resources came out initially about what that translated to for students. And depending on a student's um, you know, social and economic capacity, they may have had access to an iPhone at a younger age. Um, now the pendulum is kind of have, have swung. And so you actually see these, these um, classrooms and these school models that go more tech-free and limited technology use during school hours. Um, we've had to be very intentional at educating parents, not just on um, what these tech use, uh, the, the ramifications of these types of technology uses for their students, um, but also really the safety aspect of it mm -hmm. and um, just informing them on, you know, everything that is accessible if you're not careful and using, um, you know, proper parental controls and things like that on, on devices. So um, I see right now there's, there's a, a pull to more management um, and, and a delay use of technology that parents have. And as we see a generation of parents that grew up using these devices when they were younger, um, their perceptions of, of how that impacted their school experience and their growing up experience um, certainly impacts their choices for giving that to their children. Where's the pendulum in terms of social media involvement as far as um, beneficial because you get to talk to your grandmother who's five states away and um, harmful because you're spending too much time on it, consuming too much content that you can't possibly digest and or being exposed to super toxic content. Is it, is it swinging one direction or another? Uh, I mean, what, what do you, what do you see? Yeah, I, you know, I think this was hard because I saw this trend start in the last two years where parents really pulled back access to content and access to devices. Hmm. Um, and through the last six months and through um, families having to spend more time at home and, 
um, less access to some of the other activities that that students would normally be doing. Um, it's come back a little bit as a way to to um, be a source of entertainment and connection, like you said, Skyping with grandma, she's, you know, quarantined at home two states away and that kind of thing. So it'll be very interesting to see where we go this coming year, because I think we're, we're at a turning point in terms of, of blending the access to, to these devices and to these programs for the purposes of education and connection in a very positive way. Um, and I think we're going to see um, people more excited to embrace the interpersonal worlds because we've been a little bit deprived from, from those interactions for a while. I have long lamented the instant gratification that has uh, kind of consumed our culture through the use of technology. And as, as awesome as it is just to go to the Google machine and return an instant result, um, it seems like we've lost the work ethic of going to the library card catalog. And I just pick those as um, examples, but there are myriad more that we could hold out as examples of how things have changed. And, and I get that you, know, you can be more productive and there's benefit to, to doing things faster and so forth. But what I'm seeing is a lack of distress tolerance. And this comes back to the social and emotional learning where when I was forced to look up something in the encyclopedia or in the library card catalog, I had to, I had no other choice but to be patient. And um, I could maybe rifle through the, the cards faster, <laughs> but as fast as my thumbs would go and quickly as I could process the alphabet. But um, it seems to me that uh, kids, kids these days, uh, <laughs> kids these days, and, uh, and adults too, because I'm seeing it trickle up uh, I'm seeing it myself. I'm seeing it my parents even in their generation. We're losing the ability to tolerate the distress of not getting things instantly. You know, the internet uh, waffles for just a second and we are shaking our fists and frothing at the mouth. Um, and some of that is just, you know, I, I expect what I want delivered through the contract I signed with my internet service provider to be delivered. Okay. I get that. But um, the other one is like, whoa, we're way too emotionally intolerant these days. And I'm wondering if, you're seeing and or you have a certain judgment or assessment about that. I certainly think it's, it's bad. Um, but are, are you seeing the same thing I'm seeing in it? And do you think it's good or bad or indifferent? Yeah. Well, what's interesting in, in 2006, I was working at a high school in a, in a rural town in Texas and the principal had been in education for about 30 years. And she said, you know, I, I used to be able to tell students that something was happening. There was a concert or there was a show or something, someone won a game or something and they would just believe me. And they would say, well, my principal told me that. So that that's what happened. And she said in a matter of a year, it's gone from, I believe the things that I hear from those around me in authority to, I question everything because I have the capacity in my hand to verify the facts that I'm hearing. And hmm. so no longer do, is there this, this notion to, to just believe the information that we hear? How many times in discussion with those around us do we say, hold on a minute, let me, let me verify that fact. Let me make sure that what you're saying is right or that what I'm saying is right. And um, I think it's really pushed us into this capacity to, of distrust because we yeah. at the same time turn to that resource as our source for facts. And that, you know, obviously opens up an entirely different conversation, but 
um, being that um, it puts way, it puts such an astronomical amount of information at our disposal. Um, I think that there are, there are good things about that, but there are definitely very detrimental aspects to that as well. Are we teaching children, students broadly, college or otherwise, uh, how to discern fact from fiction? Right. That is, that is something that we definitely explicitly teach through um, our curriculum framework. Um, but it is feedback from ELA teachers and from media teachers, journalism teachers. That is the, the, the hardest and most difficult um, thing for students to grasp because they see print context on the internet in whatever source and they automatically associate it with fact and so that capacity to just to discern information um there to think about like a peer-reviewed resource or to think about an authentic resource for students is very difficult for them because they live in this world where anything that they see in print seems to be facts um, and so that's what they they go with so we are working diligently to to correct that and to make sure that students know where to go and have the tools to get authentic and factual information while at the same time students bring a mindset of question everything so it's it's a balance and it's um it's definitely it's definitely going to be telling of um, the coming years as as we shift to more online instruction and um, students needing to be more explicit and intentional in in their sourcing one of the hardest things I think I do with um, students and fledgling clinicians is to train them to be non-attached while anchored in belief. So you can have your beliefs and you should. Everyone should have beliefs and they should know where they are. And I will just state that explicitly. I'm not interested in even debating uh, the, the introject. That's an unquestionably for assumption is an introject that I just threw out there. And I used a should and I try to avoid shoulds. But I think everybody needs to have an anchored belief system, a, a prism through which they view the world, but then know what it is, right? Know why they believe what they believe and then be open to feedback, to, to questioning that. And it seems as though we're only teaching the questioning without the anchoring. And I don't know if that's what you're seeing as an educator. It, I'm just seeing the product of it uh, postgraduate, even, even current graduate students where they're just like, yeah, everything is fluid and uh, nothing is real. So we just kind of make things up as we go uh, because I can't trust anybody anyway. And then our, our, you know, our voices of expertise lose their voice. Uh, and I got to, you know, I got to throw some blame at the platform. Certainly when you have accessibility to debate Neil deGrasse Tyson about astrophysics, when all you've got is an eighth grade education on Twitter, you know, um, it, it erodes the confidence in the subject matter experts. Um, but, but are, I mean, are you, are you seeing a way to anchor uh, children so that they aren't adrift and um, unmoored, as some would say? Yeah, so that ties into when we talk about social and emotional learning, there are, um, there are two domains that that explicitly ties into and two areas that we focus on. So one is self-management, and that's the capacity for, for a student to um, be aware of their reactions and to, uh, to take ownership of their reactions to other people and to self-manage those reactions. So um, we spend time explicitly teaching them because you, you would be amazed at the fact that even coming into high school, 14 year olds don't understand that when 
their heart starts to race, that that's an emotional response to something. It might be um, a signal that they're angry or that they're frustrated or that there's, you know, some external stimuli that makes them want to leave a situation. So we have to explicitly teach them that. That's no, that's no longer something um, that, and, and I, I say no longer because we've just unpacked why these things have shifted a little bit, but uh, we can't assume that students have these tools already um, and that parents are explicitly teaching their, their children these, um, these concepts. And so that self-management piece and then coupled with the self-awareness. So what you're talking about is, is self-awareness. It's my capacity to understand myself and my thinking and to be aware of it. Um, and to understand that my lens might be different from somebody else's. And so really, before we can get into building the relationship with other people and, and identifying ourselves in the, in the group around us, we have to understand our lens of how we see the world and ourselves and how we react to things and why something might um, have an emotional response for us, but something else doesn't. And it really does take explicitly teaching our students, giving them scenarios. So we do that. We talk about different scenarios. How would you react in this scenario? And we do some role playing because it's for them to be put in the situation um, in, in real time and have to work through it. And sometimes they think that it's, it's silly or it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really make sense. And then later on you see them going through that process when they have, you know, they have a reaction to a situation. So Definitely, it is something that schools can, you know, that need to, um, who haven't already embraced explicitly teaching students self-awareness and self-management. Um, it's definitely a great place to start because it is the precursor and it's a necessary um, layer to the next step, which is the social interaction step. Right. And I, I've done a lot, anybody who's listened to this podcast knows that I talk about emotions incessantly and I've, I've uh, described them and defined them and given examples and whatnot. Um, and my, what I do is my work's all rooted in what Carol Izzard studied for 50 years, uh, which is the, the 10 core emotions that our brain uses to adapt to the environment around it. Um, and I'm wondering where you help kids not do the blame shifting of he made me feel or she made me feel like I felt because stimulus, you know, and then I can own that and then respond out of it. How do you, how do you tamp that down and say, no, nobody makes you feel anything, but yet they do, right. They do make you feel stuff because it's the environment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely that it's that empowerment piece of, of students. And we talk about um, Angela Orr, who is, serves on our board as the principal mm -hmm. at Doral Academy, she talks a lot about giving, giving away your power and, and encouraging students to not give away their power. And so we explicitly in those conversations with them uh, outline how them blame shifting actually takes away their capacity to solve the problem and to handle their response to the problem. And for young people, it is sort of an abstract concept because it's easier to blame shift and it's easier yeah. to point fingers. Um, but they need to see that modeled in the adults that interact with them at school. Um, and we do education, some education for our parents in this as well, so that they unpack how to have those conversations with their students apart from the school setting as well. Well, I was just going to ask what ages uh, do you teach different things and how do you teach it? I know that like naming and claiming is big at the younger ages and maybe um, working through and owning is, you know, better for older ages, but that's just me spitballing. Cause I don't, I don't work with kids under about age 12. I found that I was not as good with them as I am with adolescents. 
Yeah, well, for, for our younger elementary age students, so our kindergarten through fourth grade, um, they, that, um, just the cognitive piece for them to, to have that level of social awareness is, um, it's a challenge. They're not all there and they are very wrapped up in other people's response to them. And they don't have that affective filter of worrying about what their peers think of them that comes later on in middle school. So for example, a second grader who has an altercation on the playground might find it um, not embarrassing to throw a temper tantrum and start crying and, and getting very frustrated. But a Tell me about grader, it. I got a five-year-old. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right? So they're at different stages. And so we definitely address those, uh, you know, those interactions differently. Uh, based on on age and, and cognitive development. So we're like, um, I don't know, basically a full generation into this uh, mobile device, social media era, which means that we have parents who really never learned this stuff either. And now we're asking them to teach it to kids, but they themselves don't understand it. Uh, it could seem like a foreign language. I mean, it really, uh, the language of emotion is its own language. Um, and it is important to know what people are feeling and you, and something Izzard dis described in, uh, in his research was that with a, somewhere between 86 and 94% accuracy, you know what somebody's feeling of those 10 emotions by what they wear on their face. Uh, so it's important to, for communication among individuals to know what people are feeling and what they themselves are feeling, communicate accurately, but how do you work with parents when they themselves are aren't literate, you know, aren't fluent in the language. Right. Um, no, that's a, it's a really good point. Um, and I have found, um, especially working with parents who um, are maybe the, that younger generation of parents, so first time parents of five, six, seven year olds that are in this category, um, they, they don't necessarily um, have awareness of how written correspondence um, comes off to to the people they're trying to communicate with. And so I default to either Zoom meetings where we can read each other's uh, facial expressions or in-person meetings where we actually have a chance to talk about tone and 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 read that that interpersonal um, you know energy. And so I t uh, tend to model for them what that looks like. And can, you know, we have, as school leaders have to gauge where parents are coming from and give them an outlet. Um, but then I model for them in my response, obviously, if they are very upset and come in very, you know, angry and frustrated about something that happened, um, it's, it's my job to teach them by modeling that response to them. And so I'm going to give them an example of how I would respond to that situation. And I do the role play scenario with parents as well and walk them through what an appropriate um, interaction would be with their with their students. So um, it is it's definitely become more intentional and it is definitely generational in terms of um, outlining that response. And um, I, I will articulate with parents very directly and say, I, um, I would really love to be able to have this conversation where we can see each other because I think it does a lot to help build relationship. And mm -hmm. usually get, you know, 99% of the time I'll get such a response that they automatically become aware that their, that their, you know, written tone was not what they were trying to convey. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and two, you know, I'm thinking with the Zoom thing now, you see yourself on the screen as well. So you can, 
you can see your own affect and realize you're like, Oh, I do. I do look angry <laughs> because you got your own screen staring back at you. Hopefully. Um, and, and I'm glad you answered that question. You're like 99% of the time they're, you know, they're open to it or whatever. Cause I was going to ask, uh, how, how are they receiving this? Are they receptive? Cause in my field, everybody's receptive because usually they're turned to the rope when they come to see us. And so of course they're willing to learn anything. Um, uh, but education is sort of, you know, forced upon people. And I don't know if they come in folding their arms, like, I don't need to know this stuff, fix my kid. Um, but I'm glad to hear that they're, that people are really open to that. That's, that's nice. Yeah, they absolutely are. And, um, and they, they ask a lot of questions. So I think that they're, even if they maybe don't have the tools, there's definitely an, an awareness of what I don't know type of type That's of approach good. to the parenting piece. And so we do get to have further conversations. We're, we're fortunate to have um, a parent liaison behavior specialist at our school that is very intentional at, at that education piece and shaping that narrative for our parents um, and thinking of it through the lens of our of our parent community. So, um, yeah, it's it's great that there is a willingness to to want to learn and to realize that there are ways that that we can improve on. And it's all education, right? As long as we remain humble and realize we don't know everything, uh, we can all hopefully receive more wisdom regardless of where it originates and, and what the topic is. It's not just uh, hey, you know, your kid's struggling in uh, times tables. It's, hey, your kid's struggling with fighting on the playground. And we now know, you know, a timeout doesn't do them well. We got to teach them. We got to teach them what is appropriate and not appropriate and why it's, you know, offensive to somebody else to throw dirt in their face. <laughs> um, right. And where does that originate? And what were you feeling in your body before it happened? And um, how, how does this translate then to uh, like parenting, and follow through with homework and frustration with not wanting to do tasks and that kind of thing. Yeah, one thing that um, our, our student behavior specialist, Carol Davis, that came to us, one of her approaches, which I, once she explained it to me in her words, I just had a light bulb moment of um, understanding corrective consequence. And um, corrective consequence is this notion that it's the task that I want to avoid or the thing I don't want to do that's causing me to do um, the behavior. Mm -hmm. And so we focus on identifying what is the, what is it that is making that that's catching me up? What is it that's making me not want to do the task? Is it because math is actually really hard for me and I don't understand the concept. So anytime it's math class, I, you know, decide that I'm going to do anything I can to get out of that task. And then we focus on putting the corrective consequence in place. So front loading, whether it's the academic support or the social emotional support on the front end so that we reduce the behavior on the back end. Mm. So you're pre-teaching basically what the, what the expectations are so that it's not a surprise. Absolutely. So much pre-teaching um, and explicitly teaching and explicitly telling. And so we, you know, we always say we can't be mad at someone for breaking an, an expectation that they didn't know was an expectation. And so yes. we spend a lot of time, our, uh, our teaching team has been working all summer on outlining what that looks like in our classes and across our campus. And I think um, just the same thing in the home when we're dealing with our, with our children, you know, if we haven't explicitly told them they need to take their dishes and put them in the, you know, rinse them off and put them in the dishwasher after dinner, and we only get frustrated when they don't do it. We're always going to be in a reactive consequence state 
instead mm -hmm. of in a corrective consequence state. Yeah, and when you're in that reaction state, you're in limbic mode. That's that's emotion mode. And when you're in emotion mode, you're not going to be in uh, cognition. Cognition being reason, logic, and so forth. That's your that's your frontal lobe. That's your executive functioning. It's where thinking happens. So if you're in feeling, you're not thinking, and if you're in thinking, you're not going to be reactive. Uh, the idea is to to remain calm and in our frontal lobes as often as possible, so that we can educate our children, whether at home or in the classroom, about what they can expect to come uh, instead of when they do whatever they're going to do because their children, they're developmentally you know, behind wherever we are as adults, uh, hopefully, uh, then we don't have to be um, emotional in our response. We can be logical in our response. And that's not to say that it's going to happen every time. I, Lord knows as a parent, I mean, I yell at my kids more often than I need to, um, but that's my fault. And, and I need to take ownership of that and say, well, what did I miss this time that I expected my kid to do, but failed to tell him what my expectation was? And then next time, how do I, how do I pre-teach that? And what it requires is me getting out of my own uh, limbic state. And sometimes that limbic state is not caused by the children. Sometimes it's caused by work. Or if I'm distracted by social media and there's negative headlines that I'm scrolling through, I will get frustrated and then I look over and my kids like, you know, not doing what he's supposed to. Uh, and then I take it out on him. And that's, that's totally unfair uh, that, that I would transplant all of this stuff that I had from wherever I brought it into the child who didn't deserve it and didn't cause it. Um, so a lot of parental awareness needs to take place too. It's, you know, social emotional learning is not just for children. Right. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is when I lived in France, I um, lived in a two-story home and my host mother kept young children um, during the day as part of, of her work. And um, she didn't have outlet covers. She didn't have gates at the stairs, baby gates, um, any of those things. And she had antiques everywhere in the house and things that the oh, kids man. could access. And, you know, I came with a lens of, well, that's not safe. You need to protect you know, they need to be protected from all of these things. And I came to understand that, that culturally, and her response was, well, I'm not teaching them to live in a baby world. I'm teaching them to live in the adult world. And so I, I'm teaching them from now that what is acceptable and what's not and what's going to hurt them and what, do, and what won't. Um, and taking that lens was very interesting. And, and certainly not to say that we don't want to take measures to protect our young children for safety and all of that, because we absolutely do. But just this concept of of setting expectations that are that important, even with very young, young people yeah. um, and realizing that they can follow through France, the preschool system in France is one of the, the top preschool uh, systems in the, the entire world. And in, in terms of the expectations that they have and, and how students come into kindergarten. And um, that is exactly the philosophy is that we're giving them all the tools and teaching them explicitly all of the expectations to live in the adult world. That is so profound. And there's a very clear distinction to be drawn between teaching children to live in an adult world and treating them like adults. And I think that gets conflated sometimes. And out of uh, fear, we retreat to uh, overprotection because we ourselves can't stand the idea that they would go through some sort of distress in learning how to interact in the adult world. And so we end up with this overprotective um, environment that doesn't do them any favors when they do become adults. And, and I, I'm really glad you brought that up because we could spend hours on that topic alone and how detrimental it is to children when you don't allow them to fail, when you don't allow them to struggle, when you pull them out of their distress too early. 
um, or you just step in front of every risk that they'll ever take because um, then they become virtually incompetent as they become adults and go into work or, or, you know, post post-secondary education or whatever it is. So um, really glad that you brought that up, teaching them to live in an adult world um, because they're not going to live in a child's world uh, afterward. At least yeah, you don't absolutely. think they will. <laughs> That's the plan. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so um, I'm aware of the time. I want to, you know, honor what you have to do. My stomach is growling too. So out of a little bit of selfishness, I'd like to eat food before I uh, engage in the next meeting. But um, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing that stuff because we haven't really covered it much. What um, What's one thing you would like the audience to take away if you could give them a nugget of wisdom or um, or an invitation to to look at themselves or something like that? Um, I would say the most important thing is to, to model all of these aspects in your interactions with others. And so if I model self-management and I model self-awareness and I, and I model making responsible decisions, really our students learn by our example of what we do and not by what we tell them to do. And so if they see me making responsible decisions, wearing my seatbelt, stopping at red lights, you know, responding appropriately mm -hmm. to, to conflict, that's what they're going to learn to do. And so the biggest takeaway would be um, educate, educate yourself and become as aware as you can about your reactions and responses. Um, and particularly when your children or other children, other people's children are around, knowing that they're learning from watching your behavior. They sure are. They sure are. Um, that's, that's a really important point to leave. And I think you said it well enough. I don't have to uh, summarize. Uh, well, Jamie Curtis, thank you. Um, if people wanted to find out more about you or Pinecrest or education in general, do you have any resources or books that you might throw out on websites? Uh, if they wanted to contact you, I don't know if you want to share that or not. Yeah, no, I mean, feel free to visit pinecrestnnv.org. That's our school website. We have links to so many resources, videos, um, activities, idea sharing for managing um, home and school and, and keeping it all together. And so we have our YouTube channel linked there, Facebook, all of our social media is linked there as well. So feel free to, to visit our site, reach out. I'm always happy to, to dive a little deeper into these topics with people. Are you still doing your Facebook lives? And, how, and if so, how often will they continue? Yeah, I've been doing about one or two. We've shifted from the live to um, recorded at this point, just so that we can reach more people. But um, yeah, those are ongoing. So we, we plan to keep the, the Facebook and video communication out about once every two weeks. That's awesome. I think every, every uh, school leader should do that. Um, it's a great way to connect with the community. And uh, so the Facebook page of Pinecrest is a good way to, to find Jamie's content and, uh, you know, hear more of what she has to say on a variety of topics, given the, the Q and a that's, that's thrown her way. So um, thanks. appreciate it. Um, glad to, okay. glad to have you on. Yeah, Rosa. absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, uh, on behalf of our Noggin Notes team and the Zephyr Wellness family, we wish you all great mental wellness. Take care.